welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. On this podcast, we will be taking a look at the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. I am Max. I am Rich. And this episode, we will be discussing Weird War Tales number 17. But first, Rich has some retroactive history for you. Yes, indeed. The art of Nick Cardi has graced the cover of several issues of Weird War Tales. While reading an article about veteran comic creators, I was startled to discover that Cardi had designed the division patch for the 66th Infantry Division, a snarling Black Panther's head. Check the album. As additional little side history minute for the 66th Division, they have an unfortunate um, early war history. Uh, they were uh, on their way to uh, mainland Europe as reinforcements for the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, they were all, uh, there was 2,000 of them that were crowded aboard the Belgian troop ship Leopoldville on Christmas Eve, 1944, and the U-486 found them first. The troop ship was torpedoed and 763 service members drowned in the frigid 48-degree English Channel water. The remains of 493 of them were never found. The wall of the missing in the Normandy American Cemetery, unfortunately, has a very heavy representation of the 66th Infantry Division. Merry Christmas. Yeah, so while uh, everyone digests all that information, we'll, uh, we'll take a short podcast promo break before we come back to take a look at the issue at hand. Hey Mike, have you heard about my new podcast? Oh, what's that? Oh, it's where you talk to people on your computer and then put it out on the internet. Yeah, yes, I know what a podcast is, Paul, but, but what's the show you're doing? Yeah, I'm going to talk to people on my computer and then put it out on the internet. And uh, what's this called? Uh, since it's a chat show and I really want to talk to interesting people about interesting things, I thought I'd call it something that was, you know, self-explanatory, like Dial F for Flanger. Right. Dial F for Flanger. Cool. I, I look forward to my guest spot. When are you going to have me on? Uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, I'll, I'll get back. Wow. Well, if you'd like to hear Paul chatting away on this Dial F for Flanger show, you can find it on the Waiting for Doom Network. And we are back. So we're going to, as I said, discuss Weird War Tales number 17, and Rich will fill you in with the cover details. Art by George Evans. The yellow Weird War Tales is a gorgeous contrast on the red background. Death is wearing the garb of what appears to be a World War I German pilot as French and German fighter planes swirl around him. Death is crushing one aircraft from each side in his hands. Date release September 1973 on sale June 19th, 1973. Killjoy looks like the colorist mist of the French roundelle on the port wing of the plane that Death is crushing. And I will punt this over to Max. All right, comments and commendations. Yet another silent cover that works perfectly well. Uh, once again, my... My beloved blurbs and sound effects or dialogue balloons are completely missing and it doesn't matter. It's a great cover. I am also left with kind of the impression of a child playing with toy planes and making like vocal sound effects as the dogfight goes on. It's maybe not the intent, 
but I think that that makes the image even more chilling in a way. Like to me, it, it just looks like this oversized child playing with toy planes, but it's really death. So again, another cover that goes against a lot of my requirements for old comic books, but um, just succeeds anyway. So I like it. Death is a game. Baron von Richthofen's Jagdischvater, probably butchered that, one was known as the Flying Circus because of the bright colors on the German aircraft. The German aircraft on the cover closest to the viewer are black, yellow, and red. I really enjoy the way the colors pop here. Can't figure out what the German aircraft is that Death has in his clutches, but everything else appears to be Fokker D7s and Spads. Like you said, good cover. Like it. Yeah, I love it. And because the first story is so thick with planes, I have to let Rich do the first story in the issue. So here you go. Yes. Yes, you do. Dead Man's Hands. 12 pages. Kind of a long one. Story by Bob Conagher. Art by George Evans. It's the cover story, vaguely. Colonel Victor Bretagne is the commanding officer of a World War I Newport fighter squadron based at Compiègne, France. In the middle of a swirling dogfight, he recognizes the plane of German ace von Bechten. The German signals that his guns are jammed, but Bretagne, wanting his 10th kill, shoots the helpless German down anyway. As the Newports fly for home, the massed German guns defending the gas depot at Neuilly opened fire on them. Anyone attacking the depot would be committing suicide. Back on the ground, Bertain orders a 10th kill marking painted on his aircraft as his adoring pilots crowd around. The great von Beckton downed. How do you do it, Mon Connell? With these hands, he replies. They are the hands of a musician of death. Unlike other aces that collect trophies for their victories, Bertain prefers to throw a model of a German aircraft into the fireplace and play a funeral march on his violin as the plane burns. Denise arrives to deliver a bottle of wine, but the colonel wants more than the wine. He wants Denise to love him, but she feels nothing for the colonel. As Bertain begins to get more forceful, a burst of bullets shatters a nearby window. Bertain and Denise hurry outside and witness a spad in a whirling dogfight over the field with two albatrosses. The lone French pilot downs both German airplanes, and the Newport pilots crowd around the pilot as he lands. I've never seen two kills in a single duel, one exclaims. The colonel fumes how quickly they've forgotten about his ten kills. Lieutenant André Voisin is a replacement reporting for duty, but he was wounded in the dogfight. As Denise nurses Voisin back to health, they fall in love. Bretagne's jealousy knows no bounds, especially after Voisin returns to duty and the lieutenant's victory total ties the colonels. Bretagne orders Voisin on a solo attack to the gas depot wheelie. When Voisin protests that it's a suicide mission, Bretagne implies that Denise would think he was a coward. Voisin accepts the mission and vows to return. The next morning, Voisin heads out on his mission, and an hour later, the colonel receives a call from forward observers saying the spad had vanished in the storm of fire over Neuilly. A smile crosses his face. But incredibly, the spad soon returns to the field and lands. Lieutenant Voisin is dead at the controls. The colonel can't believe it. He had returned. The spad suddenly starts to taxi and chases Bertain across the field, throwing up his hands to protect himself. The whirling propeller cuts them off. 
flying is Bretagne's life. If he can't fly, he may as well be dead. The hospital surgeon has experimented with grafting limbs on animals, but never on humans. As luck would have it, there's a corpse in the morgue with undamaged hands. Bretagne orders him to proceed, but the colonel doesn't know the hands belong to Lieutenant Wazan. Weeks go by, and the surgery has succeeded. Denise knows Bertain had ordered Vazan to his death, but he simply says that he shouldn't have sent a boy to do a man's job. He will attack the gas depot himself on an identical solo mission. She tells him to fly to hell. His new hands work like a dream, but the enemy flak over target is too intense. As he aborts the mission, his hands grab him by the throat and start to strangle him with fingers of steel. Bertain can't break the grip. His Newport goes into an uncontrolled dive right into the enemy gas depot and detonates it. Lieutenant Andre Voisin didn't return from the dead, but his hands did. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Go ahead, d- jump into Killjoy history. I couldn't find Campion anywhere online, and the only wheelie I could find is in the middle of Paris, which the Germans never took during the war. On page three, panel one, we see a German Gatling-type gun firing up at the French aircraft. I never recalled seeing anything like that before, so I did some research. The Fokker Limburger was an externally powered 12-barreled rifle caliber rotary gun, say that five times fast, developed in Germany during World War I. It used a split breech design that formed a temporary chamber when two touching counter-rotating sprockets formed a temporary chamber. Although Fokker claimed 7,200 rounds per minute was possible, problems with faulty wartime ammunition and the weapon's inability to seal the breech cylinders meant it constantly jammed and never entered mass production. So while the creative team here gets high points for knowing about this, apparently it never got to the front. Uh, besides, Evans drew it like it's firing 40 millimeter shells. Uh, also, a common complaint of mine in comic books is when artists don't draw an aircraft's propeller arc wide enough. Page 9, panel 2 is probably the best example of this in the story. If the prop is too small, the airplane stays on the ground, guys. Comments and commendations. The great full page panel on page 1 is very similar to the cover. You can see a flaming body falling from the Newport death is crushing. But for an odd propeller-sized bitch, Evans kills the art in this story. Fulker D7s, Spads, Newports, Albatrosses, all the aircraft are recognizable. And Conagher masterfully paints the colonel as a bad guy for shooting down a helpless opponent on the second page. Knights of the Air, we've been over this a couple of times. His lust for Denise and jealousy of Lieutenant Boisson only makes the reader dislike him even more. With a few tweaks, this easily could have been an enemy A story. I love me my World War I flying stories. Two thumbs up. Page two, panel five, when Bretagne banks over the falling von Beckton is a real eye catcher too. Yep, this is a winner. This was a super enjoyable story uh, with a, as you mentioned, mustache twirling villain getting his just desserts not once, but twice. And I'll come back to that point. Also, as you said, the art here is great, and I'll call out page four, panel three, where the colonel is seen playing an eulogy on his violin for his 10th airborne victim. There's some great shifts in perspective in those three panels up top, and it really highlights just how much of a conceited jackass this character is right before he does something even worse to make sure we know he's the bad guy when Denise shows up. I just, I really like how the artist is able to flip the camera 
in each of those panels and bring you through the scene. It's it's just excellent. Uh, I'm not super familiar with George Evans, but I'm a huge fan of him now because of this story and that cover. And we have combat, drama, romance, and vengeance from beyond the grave twice, as I said. Yes, about that ending. We get two endings. They really could have left it with the loss of the colonel's hands. But then we get the reattached hands of the lieutenant strangling the colonel to death in combat. Honestly, the second ending felt a bit tacked on to me as if someone said, hey, this is weird war tales. Make with the spooky stuff. But that said... I still really like this one. And that second ending thing is just a nitpick for me. I had to search real hard to find anything bad to say about this one. It's just my nature. But damn, when I read this, I was like, well, here's an early Christmas present for Rich for the show. Because this this episode's not going to come out till the end of January, but we're recording it a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. So I was just like, man, good timing after that previous issue for this story to show up for Rich. And (laughs) since we gave Rich his present with the first story, I will soldier on to the second and only remaining story in this issue. It's an eight-pager called A Gun Named Marie. Story is by Michael Palowski, who I've never heard of, I don't think, and E. Nelson Bridwell, who I definitely have heard of, an art by Ernie Chan, though it says Ernie Chua in the credits, and we'll get to that later. The synopsis of A Gun Named Marie goes like this. The Battle of the Bulge. December 1944, as a hard-hit American unit pulled back, three infantrymen stayed behind to cover their retreat. Glenn Rust was an 18-year-old replacement who had volunteered to be one of those men. He constantly cleaned the gun he called Marie and took some heat from the others for treating the gun like a girl. His dad had been a gunsmith, and Rust had been taught at an early age to treat guns with respect. Empty guns have a way of turning on you when you least expect it. If I keep Marie in good shape, she won't let me down when I need her, Russ says. Major Eric von Strick, a German, if you couldn't pick up on that, strongly believed in the Nazi master race dogma. Other races were vermin to be mercilessly stamped out, and he ordered his men to attack as the Americans withdrew. The three GIs, Rust included, inflicted heavy casualties on the Germans, and Rust cheered Marie on as German after German fell to Marie's fire. Finally, the Germans retreated, but Rust was the only American still alive. Von Strick angrily rallied his men in the woods. The Americaner and their allies are kaput! We are winning at last. Soon the Fuhrer will rule the world. When one of his own men responded with, they beat us in Africa, in the Mediterranean, on the beaches of France. It is we who are kaput. Von Strick shoots him and orders the second attack. Once again, Glenn Russ, faithful Marie, blasted the advancing Germans until only Von Strick remained. One more shot and Rust would rejoin his unit. But Marie was empty. Von Strick knew it and could have taken Russ prisoner, but shot him three times instead. Marie fell out of the dying Russ's reach as he moaned her name. Von Strick laughed as he picked up Marie, but was horrified when the rifle spontaneously fired at point-blank range into his chest. Nine! It was empty! Empty! He gasped as he died. As Russ joined Von Strick in death... He knew Marie hadn't failed him. Good girl. Good. 
the end of Rust, the end of Von Strick, the end of that story, the beginning of Rich's Killjoy was here. I get the idea Rust is supposed to be using an M1 carbine, but Chan did a bad job of portraying it. However, for a story that's supposed to take place during one of the worst winters in a century, there is no white snow anywhere in the story. Everything is orange and brown like sand. This could have been set in North Africa. I got beaten Kasserine Pass or Italy. Fire the colorist! He's harsh, but fair, people. In light of that, I'll take some of the the, uh, sharpness off the blow and jump into comments and commendations. And I mentioned we were going to talk about the credits for Ernie Chan being Ernie Chua, or however that is correctly pronounced, probably not the way I said it. (laughs) Right. From the bastion of truth that is Wikipedia, I will simply quote straight from it. Ernie Chan was born Ernie Chua due to what he called a typographical error on my birth certificate that I had to use until I had a chance to change it to Chan when I got my U.S. citizenship in 76. So there you go. That explains something that I had always known that those two names were the same person, but I never knew why until we were getting ready to do this show. And I went to, again, the always reliable, never edited by morons Wikipedia. That seems pretty likely to me. I didn't find anything that contradicted it out there. As far as this story, I expected to hate this one since the whole loves his gun like a woman thing reeks on the surface to me of one of those 1950s reprint stories from the earlier issues of this series. However, in my opinion, the execution more than saves it. And I ended up really enjoying this story. The art was no small factor in that either. You know, Ernie Chan in the house. That first page is beautiful and it's all great, but I have to call out something. So I will call out the first panel of page three with the introduction of our German nemesis von Strick. He could not look more menacing and evil in that picture. It's excellent. I will, however, point out, since this is my nature, a bit of storytelling that threw me off for a second. There's a transition from the last panel of page three to the first panel of page four that leaves me no reason to think that the guy standing up to get a better bead on the Germans isn't Glenn Rust, our main character. So for a moment, it looked to me like we lost our protagonist a bit early there. Other than that, this was a surprisingly solid story for me, as I mentioned. And I can't leave without mentioning the sound effects work, which was excellent. I love me some big, bold, classic sound effects. And these pages provided me with plenty of them. I was a happy guy. Two stories, two Germans with Vaughn in their name. I liked the way the writers kept hammering home every German Marie killed was an extra chance for life for Rust. Each bullet was like a breath of air to a drowning man. Page five, panel four. Uh, Rust is in the foreground looking down his sights, blasting away as one of his buddies gets obliterated behind him by a grenade. Glenn heard the grenade blast but hadn't even the time to glance to see which of his buddies had been killed. He was too busy killing others because he didn't want to die. Life had never been sweeter than now when it might end at any moment. That's a pretty good piece of writing right there. Let's just be honest. Love it. And page two, panel three, when Rust is cleaning Marie, it looks like a still from a 50s war movie. Great capture. And uh, this is a sidebar. Uh, right after Von Strick orders the second attack, There's a full-page ad for The Shadow, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. 
right there. It almost fits into the story and it threw me off just a little bit. And I'm going to be a little bit of a dick here when the story says Marie hadn't failed him. Yeah, she kind of did. Where was that magic bullet 10 seconds ago? Now you're going to die. <laughs> hey, man, hell hath no fury like a uh, female rifle scorned, <laughs> even though she wasn't scorned. But, you know, you never know. You never know where he went wrong. And and Marie had to teach him a lesson at the end there. And that shadow ad, I'm glad you mentioned it because I, I didn't pull it out for my example ad in the issue, but it's a Michael Kaluta full page shadow ad. It's freaking beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So damn yeah. good. Very good. <laughs> so stories Fully accounted for. Again, we still got 20 pages of story in this issue, even though it was only two of them. We will move on to our much beloved APO Weird War Tales letters page, and Rich will kick it off. Okay, I'm going to read a letter from Gary Kimber from Scarborough, Canada. Dear Joe, your latest issue of Weird War Tales is the poorest number I can remember since you took over the editorship. There was a preponderance of war and not enough weird in number 12. The covers of Weird War have always been distinctive, and this one, by Mike Kaluta of all people, was no exception. I can still hardly believe that's MWK on the cover. The faces look like they were done by Alcala, totally unlike Kaluta's normally light and delicate art lines. The best art in the interior was by Tony DeZuniga. Neither Jerry Teleak nor Don Perlin was impressive. As I said earlier, the stories lacked any kind of original weirdness about them. The first story is another hackney tale of vengeance. The second's the same thing, and the last story was just plain ridiculous. I enjoyed the unifying theme of number 11 and would welcome another issue like that. I still feel you're placing undue emphasis on traditional war. Surely your writer's imaginations are better than that. And Dorlander replies, Dear Gary, if you read the first part of this letter call, you'll understand our problem. Neither you nor Tom O'Neill liked number 12, but both of you had exactly opposite reasons for disliking it. So yeah. this was a pretty, I mean, this was the one with the two Anubis stories and the Roman gladiator, because I'll be honest with you, I have to go back and see which ones they're talking about from time to time. I thought that was a pretty good, story actually i thought it was you know not you know it wasn't the best one but it was far from the worst i kind of have to disagree with with uh with gary on this one a little bit just um yeah no. yeah a little bit <laughs> a little bit this guy is uh, it couldn't be more wrong about that issue like uh, the fact that i i remember that two-parter with with the pharaoh very well because it it leaned on like he complained about and like wouldn't see the fit. dinner. Yeah. And like dinner and all that. Yeah. Like, but it, it sort of leaned on stuff that could be explained without a supernatural element and blah, blah, blah. But that's why that story worked as well as it did. So I don't get him talking about the artist, not, you know, Don Perlin, not impressing or whatever, but he meant it like Joe Orlando mentions Tom O'Neill and just so that's happens. That's my chosen letter. He starts off the letters column here so i'll go back to read our little missive from tom o'neill address unknown probably so i can't find him <laughs> so <laughs> here he goes he says dear joe i wouldn't write you to compliment you on how good each of your magazines are or i'd be writing all the time so i'm writing to point out a bad one weird war tales number 12 wasn't up to your usual standard of quality let's start with the cover crummy when I first saw it, I felt 
Mild surprise that you could actually put such an idiotic looking cover on one of your comics. It looks like the work of a three-year-old. Then there's the first story, God of Vengeance. The story was good and the art was average. Not so with The Hand of Hell, your second story. Again, a good story, but the art by Tony DeZoniga didn't do much for me. As a matter of fact, it's the worst art job I've seen in any DC comic. The third story, The Warrior and the Witch, was the best, despite the dumb name. The story was as good as the others, and the art by Don Perlin was great. I liked the idea of stories set in ancient times. Again, the art on the first two stories can use some work. And when I say the scripts are good, I mean good, or maybe even very good, but not excellent, which is what Weird War Tales has been in the past. So shape up! My advice, keep doing stories of war in ancient times, along with those set in modern times. Keep Bob Conniger and Arnold Drake, and by all means, keep Don Perlin. Send Tony DeZuniga to art school, and you'll be fine. Also, start making better covers. Korak's cover this month wasn't so good either. Again, Tom O'Neill, address unknown. Good thing. Good thing. (laughs) And again, of course, Joe Orlando is a professional and a gentleman. So his response is quite diplomatic, much more so than mine would be. He says, dear Tom, to answer your last gripe first and maybe clear up a little confusion in the process, Korak is edited by Joe Kubert. Weird War Tales for the past nine or 10 issues has been edited by Joe Orlando. I I wonder if this is Joe because he's referring to himself in the third person there, but who knows? Kubert stopped editing World War Tales to devote more time to Tarzan some time ago. Next, while you disliked Hand of Hell, and the cover, the following letter writer loved both. We try to please everyone with a balanced mag, and although we don't always succeed, we feel that we've got a pretty good track record, and you can go to hell. No, he didn't say that last part, but that's what I said at the end, (laughs) because Tom O'Neill has no taste in art whatsoever in particular. I mean, calling Tony DeZuniga, calling him out as the worst art he's ever seen in any DC comic, just... I can't trust you about anything at that point. So, so we're going to move on from that little bit of, uh, of wisdom and uh, spotlight our ads in this issue that jumped out to us. Now I'll kick it off and we've got an ad that shows up between pages two and three of a gun named Marie. We have a house ad for Strange Sports Stories, a title which I've seen covers from online over the years, but I've never yet read. The cover of the issue featured in this ad shows the devil pitching at a baseball game in full baseball uniform and a living lawn gnome or a dwarf or some such creature out bowling at an alley packed with human onlookers. I mean, I got to give this series a try at some point, right? (laughs) You know, uh, weird sports tales, strange sports stories, people. I, I, I haven't looked on the DC Universe Infinite app to see if they've uploaded that yet, but if they had, it's going right on my phone. So that's my ad. Because I'm an infant, the secret seat bomb. Place the secret seat bomb under the cushion of any chair or couch. When someone sits on it, the bomb goes off with a blast. You'll get a million laughs completely harmless, and may be used over and over again. Satisfaction guaranteed or money back. Sorry, minimum order is $1. Damn, not a whole dollar. That's two weeks allowance. These are 50 cents. Guess I'll get two. 
I'm sorry, was there some rule about calling these things whoopee cushions in 1973? Apparently not. Different vendors had earlier just, you know, called them whoopee cushions. Well, maybe they knew it would be in a war book. <laughs> so they figured they'd call it a seat bomb. Secret. A secret seat bomb. Seat bomb. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Double secret probation seat bomb. <laughs> Double detonation. Fool Fantastic. your friends. <laughs> I, I mean, can be used multiple times. Yeah, not once you use it on one of your parents, it can't. <laughs> the dog gets all of it or the cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're done for. So there we go. We got two stories. We got two enjoyable, if somewhat negative letters, some great ads. And now... We have our section called Got Any Last Words? Indeed. Good stories, decent ads, good letters page. Much better than last issue. Dead man's hands ruled the roost. Fun issue all the way around. Me likey. I agree. A great issue indeed. Only two stories, but neither one felt bloated or padded out. And I didn't feel cheated when the issue was over either. Is a fine return to form. And I, as we're going through this, I made a note to talk about something that, that just occurred to me while we were doing our synopses. And there's a carryover kind of in theme from last issue from the one story we liked in the previous issue that um, had the guy who was constantly having his body parts replaced. Well, there was the theme of the replacement guy who, you know, had come in to replace someone who had died. And that is mentioned in a gun named Marie. Glenn Rust is a replacement. And then in the first story in this issue, we have a dead person's hands getting grafted on to someone. So I just thought that was kind of funny that we technically have some recurring themes just from one issue to the next. And, you know, could be more than likely a complete coincidence, but it just jumped at me as we're going through the issue here. Anything is possible. Yeah. Weird indeed. Weird. Exactly. So we got last words out of the way here. And for uh, our next section to wrap it up, we're going to go over to the dead letter office where normally we talk about social media, likes, retweets, shares, all that fun stuff. But right now we are in between new episodes. Uh, So that's where the Gmail address comes in. And in particular, this is where Jason Zeller's awesome emails come in to save us all from having nothing to say here in the dead letter office. As you may know, Jason is listening through all of our episodes from the start and writing in as he finishes them, which is awesome. So let's see what Jason has to say about Weird War Tales number five and number six. So his first email goes like this. Weird Warriors, great cover that made me think the Germans hung the wrong man. My favorite story from issue five was Human Trigger. It was very intense as I felt the soldier's stress trying to get clear of the mind. I kept wondering, how is he going to get out of this one? Slay Eve, an all-time favorite here on the show. (laughs) That story was very well done too. I honestly thought the bird was going to free the prisoner at the end so they would be free together, but alas, not to be. Yeah, I was hoping that too when I first read it, but nope, just takes off. <laughs> the framing story. Yeah, yeah, he's just gone. <laughs> like, buddy, buddy, you gonna die. <laughs> I gotta go. The framing story was just screaming. Now, here, this is interesting to me. He says, Jason says, the framing story for issue five was just screaming an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. It also aired as an episode of The Twilight Zone. A southern civilian during the Civil War is hung from the bridge. In his mind, the rope broke and he landed in the water and finally made it home. In reality, he died by hanging on the bridge. Very moving episode. Have you guys seen this before? Now, I responded to him. Uh, My wife and I, years ago, we did this um. 
Netflix marathon of Twilight Zones back when all you could do with Netflix was order discs in the mail. <laughs> and so I feel like we must have seen that episode because we got every disc in the series, but maybe that episode just wasn't on it on those discs because I don't remember it. So I, I didn't know if you had seen that one or remembered nope. it at all. Nope. All right. Well, he's got actually, us there. I haven't, seen, actually, I haven't seen very many of the Twilight Zones. So I've, I've seen like right. the big ones, but I don't recall ever seeing this one. That uh, seems to be a series that Jason's seen quite a bit of because he hits us again, I think, in the next email with another Twilight Zone. Yeah, and it just sounds like they lifted that plot directly from that story by Entirely Beers. possible. Yeah, <laughs> that, that story by Beers or the episode or whatever. That someone did a little whoop. And Jason says, it was awesome to see DC Comics subscription ad, which had five war titles, six mystery titles, and two gothic titles. I always wanted to get all these issues. A great time to be a comics fan. Make war no more. Jason. And yeah, it's like back then, DC and Marvel had more variety going on. And these days, there's still tons of variety, I was telling Jason. Um, but you have to go really outside of DC and Marvel to get the other genres. But these days, if you if you wander out to the other companies, Image, Dark Horse, Boom, and smaller publishers, they're all there. There's a lot of great stuff in all these genres. Maybe not as many war comics as there should be, but the other ones, there's a lot of stuff out there. So Jason hits us about Weird War Tales number six. With his next email, he says, I agree with Rich on this one. So there you go, Rich. It it's really, <laughs> he, he agrees with you quite a bit. I mean, like, you know, I, I'm not racking up too many points over here. Uh, he says, it really gives shades of the Terminator with the skin hanging off the face. So this is that cover with the robot soldier who looks a lot like Sterling Holloway, according to- um, Everything uh, okay here? According to, yeah, codename Gary Seven, who wrote in and told us that. Jason says, I really enjoyed Goliath on the Western Front as a kid. It reminded me of the 1963 film Jason and the Argonauts, in which the metal giant Talos stomps around unstoppable until Hercules pulls the plug from Talos's heel. Do you guys remember that movie? And yeah, I've seen Jason and the Argonauts uh, just on TV 38 growing up probably 10 times. So yeah, that, that's an all-time classic. Jason says, I really enjoyed uh, the in-house DC Comics ad, DC's Blazing Combat Stories. It was great seeing the little faces along with the titles. Army at War, GI Combat, Fighting Forces, Star Spangled, and finally, Weird War Tales itself. Yeah, and I love the floating heads thing in comics. I love that when that's like the beginning of a book shows the roll call with everyone's little floating heads. It's a huge favorite trope of mine. So nice touch in the ad too. And uh, <laughs> Jason also says, I have to say good eye rich on the Raquel Welch pillow ad. <laughs> So everyone's enjoyed, I've, I've, everyone enjoyed Rich picking that one out for, for our spotlighted ad that time <laughs> around. That's that, that was a can't miss. So that's, that's our dead letter office with our good friend, Jason Zeller, who is making fine use of the Gmail address. So that's it for this episode, people, we are done. And <laughs> we're going to have Rich hit you with the teaser for what's next. Weird War Tales 18. It's what you're here for. American Vampires time-shifting spirits, ghosts, not mine, an oft-used killjoy argued in the letters page. How can you possibly wait two weeks? I can't. I have the script written already. Yeah, he does. And he's already emailed it to me. <laughs> I, I'm super intrigued to, to see someone uh, actually taking one of your killjoys into these letters pages because it just backs up my theory that you eventually invent or discover a time machine. Oh, no, Max, this this killjoy, trust me, 
you are all in. You will either, (laughs) you are completely in on this letter. Okay. You will have lots to say. (laughs) Fantastic. Oh man, I can't wait, but we're going to have to wait a little bit. The holidays approacheth. (laughs) So, you know, happy Thanksgiving in the past, everyone, because I said this episode comes out the end of January, 2022, but we're the weird. Happy Martin Luther King day. Happy Arbor Arbor day. Everybody just pick one. I don't know. We are birthdays around here someplace. (laughs) We're the weird warriors. We don't have to follow the rules of time. We do. We have a time traveling mouse somewhere around here. So until we figure out which timeline we are on, I'm Max. I'm Rich. We are the Weird Warriors. This is the Weird Warriors podcast, and we promise to make war. No more.